If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Podcast. Welcome back to part two of Paul Revere. When I was a child, I heard the story of the Midnight Ride, but that story is very different than the one that Revere tells. This was not one man on a horse. It was a complex spiderweb of spies and riders on high alert working together to ensure that when the moment to fight for freedom came, day or night, they would all be ready to fight as one. This episode begins where we left off last week. I just asked Revere... Did your friends forget you when they left for the Continental Congress to create our new government? Well, before those mishaps, I began to wonder if they had forgotten me. And I had considered them my friends before the war as they went to Philadelphia. And I do understand what was happening in Boston became less important than what was happening in Philadelphia with declaring our independence. Before that, forming a Continental Army, then declaring our independence, and then trying to win a war of independence, trying to gain France as an ally, trying to get soldiers paid, trying to get soldiers equipped. All of this happening, and I can understand why perhaps a man such as myself might slip through the cracks, though it is still disappointing. And I think of that now, and I'm a little milder about it now, than I was then. By the time of the New Republic, I had moved on to other things. I had no need of being a part of the government, though I have to admit, being involved in the Treasury and the minting of coins was something that I was very interested in. But by then, I moved on to my other businesses. Of course, immediately after the war, I opened up a hardware store. I opened my iron foundry, and from iron products such as firebacks and window weights and the like, I moved on to casting brass cannon and bronze church bells, and of course, as we're about to speak of, the the operation in Canton, or Canton Dell as I love to call it. By the time the war had ended, and after my court-martial cleared me in 1782, I was ready to take a deep breath, I suppose, and to move on to what the future held for my family in a new republic. So I was less concerned about them forgetting me, except for the business of my copper mill, which I became involved with the government once again. And of course, in the 1790s, I was casting cannon. In the 1790s, Henry Knox. I was casting cannon for the federal government and for Massachusetts, courtesy of our Secretary of War in the Washington administration, Henry Knox. I contracted with him to cast cannon for the federal government and, of course, with our Commonwealth, as John Adams has styled us, the state of Massachusetts, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, more properly, cannon for them as well. So... This was the time in the 1790s of casting cannon, casting church bells throughout Massachusetts. 
So I was a very busy man, and my concern for the federal government did not come back to the fore until I was trying to get a loan from the federal government for the mill in Canton. When was that? That was at the end of the 1790s and the beginning of the 1800s. I had petitioned. Before you say that, what year is it right now? It is 1802, sir. Okay, so a couple of years ago. Got it. Keep going. Indeed. During the administration of President Adams, which was from 1797, he won the election in 1796, and his administration won on through 1800, not that long ago, he had created the Department of the Navy under Benjamin Stoddard. I'd written Secretary Stoddard a letter because he had voiced a need for copper, for warships, specifically for the bottoms of the hulls of the warships. And up until that time, the only copper of that kind that could be had was in Britain, which was very expensive. And as a neutral, obviously the government was concerned that would antagonize France. So I had to do that work. Initially, of course, it was not hulls on the bottoms of, of ships. It was spikes and bolts and nails for those ships, such as the USS Constitution. I was promised a $10,000 loan, and I had put up my own money to buy the property in Canton, which had been a powder mill and an ironworks, and I, with my own money, without waiting for any loan from the government, which was expected, put that mill into shape to roll copper, which eventually would be for those ships, and for perhaps buildings down the road as well, wherever the need of copper rolls, sheets would be needed, as opposed to just the bolts and the spikes. And I, of course, I had to prove myself. I was given samples that were sent by Secretary Stoddart and Joshua Humphreys, who was the chief architect of the Navy. And I had to prove myself to them that I could do this work. And there were difficulties and there were mistakes, but I had proved it to them. And I expected much success from this mill in Canton. And then came the election of 1800 and the defeat of John Adams. The presidency has most recently begun of Thomas Jefferson of Virginia. And what do I read in the papers and hear from friends in letters? That President Jefferson is looking to cut costs with the Navy after Ooh. President Adams, since the War of Independence, has always been an advocate of wooden walls as opposed to a large standing army. All of this success with our Navy during our undeclared war with France is lost on now President Jefferson, who wants to cut costs with this new Navy. And if he's going to cut costs with the Navy, that means he's not going to honor my contract. That's what I was thinking anyway. So after a furious letter-writing campaign, I got his administration to capitulate, and I have been able to continue my contract and be paid the loan that I was promised to continue my work with copper. But it was a hard-fought battle I had to win. Boy, they and weren't just going to hand that money to you, were they? No, and I believe it has much to do with Mr. Jefferson's time in France. Why, during the time of President Adams' administration, 
when there was a threat, a very real threat of war with France, at least on the high seas, Mr. Jefferson, who was Mr. Adams' vice president, wished for it. In fact, he defended the French during those days and did not, as Mr. Adams did as vice president to President Washington, defend his president. Instead, he worked against him. So I believe a lot of those seeds were planted then. President Adams called it his quasi, the quasi-war with the French. And the, it doesn't the sound like you're a big fan of Jefferson. I am most certainly not. I am a staunch Federalist. Yeah. I, Jefferson and his friends are very much against many of my Masonic beliefs, emphasizing social harmony, order, and I say that again, order, reason, and deference to authority, all very much part of Masonic beliefs that I believe should be also part of our government's beliefs. And Mr. Jefferson and his friends are very much against that. Do you think they instead are looking to instill chaos instead of order? Well, you be the judge, sir. (laughs) I believe that making cutbacks and making it a second-rate naval power will open us up to that chaos, be it attacks from the French or the British navies, since we are a neutral. We cannot be a weak neutral. We need to deal with those powers from a position of strength. And what could be more important than a strong navy protecting our trade routes? Boy, that makes a lot of sense. If there's one thing that we've learned over the history of battle and war and, and kings and queens and all that, it's that if somebody's weak, somebody's going to come in and take their stuff. Indeed. What could yeah. be more important in these days than a strong navy? Yeah, now, that makes a lot of sense. I, I do not think a French army would have ever landed here. I think there would be more of a chance of them landing on the moon than there would be here in America. Their famous General Napoleon is more enamored with Europe than he is what is happening here in America. Yeah. It, let me go back to your, this foundry. So you've got this foundry in Canton, right? And you're or talking Canton about Dale. rolling copper. Is that exactly like it sounds? It's just rolls of copper? Copper has to be heated so it is in a liquid to soft form so that it may go through rollers and cutters, and it may be formed into bars or sheets or whatever is needed. Or with casts, much like silver, for the spikes and the nails and the bolts that are needed for ships. So it is quite a process. And in my defense of this mill, I will tell you that it was formerly a powder mill, and then it was an iron foundry, and Rather than build my own new foundry, which would have been very cost-foolish, I took the mill that was given and I adapted it to rolling from an iron foundry, which meant making a number of adjustments to rollers and things. And I had a friend visit mills in England and write letters back to me so that I could see what the process was, because their rollers were superior to ours. And, of course, I had to work with samples given to me by the government, by the Secretary of the Navy, Stoddard. And startup costs, as you know, with your own business, sir, startup costs can be very expensive. And prosperity and use for the products that you make help pay for those startup costs. I was starting to create copper before I received the loan, hence the, shall we say, the furious letter-writing campaign to the federal government 
especially when I wasn't so sure that President Jefferson's administration was going to give me that money. Jefferson and you were never going to be good friends, that's for sure. Since we're talking about money, I want to give you a dollar amount of something that will probably blow your mind, and then I'd like to talk a little bit about the, what they call the midnight ride that everybody knows you by. But before I do that, I was looking, there's a method that we have in our time where people can buy and sell things very easily from across the nation. So you could, somebody in, way in the south could sell something to somebody in the north and never even meet them. It's a whole process. But I was looking on that platform where you could do that. And I noticed that they're still in this time. I mean, we're talking more than two, well, two hundred, more than 200 years from where you are right now. You can still buy silver spoons and silver tea sets, and you can still buy things that you made in this time that you made in your time. Obviously, you know it was such high quality. So I found Indeed. a spoon. It was a dessert spoon. I mean, it was maybe the size of your middle finger. And it was selling for $17,000 in our money for one spoon, which would be about $850 in your time. Good gracious, then I wouldn't have needed a loan from the government if that had been the case, <laughs> if people were willing to buy that much. Imagine if someone had paid for a spoon that much money in my day. Oh, my goodness. That's all you do is make spoons. It would indeed. <laughs> There's no question. Imagine such a thing. That it would money be for a spoon. Revere and Sons Spoon Factory. That would have been in the name of your company. I would have never gotten out of silversmithing and onto iron foundry and copper mill work if that had been the case. You're always going where the business is. That's, that, that's interesting. Indeed. You and Hancock have maybe a little bit more in common than what I thought. Indeed. Yeah. He, so, he was a fine governor. Let me ask you about the midnight ride. When the British regulars were marching towards Concord and Lexington. You had set up this huge spy network. And then that night went out and let everybody know that, hey, this thing's about to go down. I want to hear your side of this, because in our time, there's a lot of people that think that the British regulars started marching, and then you woke up and realized it, and then rode around all by yourself and told everybody. And people that don't know a lot about history, they think it was just a one-man deal. But that wasn't the case at all, was it? It was not the case at all. And it had not been the case from the very beginning, going back to the time of warnings of such events as the destruction of the tea. Alarm systems had been put in place as far back as then. Think about this in your mind. If it had just been me, with the obstacles it would have taken me and did take me just to get out of Boston, there's no way the numbers of militia companies and minute companies would have taken the field on the 19th if it had just been me. There's no way we would have had those numbers. The idea was a spidery system of whenever a rider stops at one spot, more riders are dispatched from that town to go on to other towns where riders will leave from those towns, and so on, which is why the word spread so fast. The worry, of course, was that I was known and I could be captured. William Dawes, a fellow artisan, had left a half an hour before me from Dr. Warren's house and had gone across the Boston Neck and had managed to get out into the countryside that way. 
from where I was in the North End, I had to make use of a boat to cross near the ferry lane where HMS Somerset was in the harbor waiting for boats just like ours or ferries or, for that matter, any boat of any kind because those lanes were closed. So if I had been spotted, we would have been placed under arrest. So if I'm the only rider and I'm arrested trying to cross the Charles, then those soldiers would have been able to beat a march before there was any response. They did in September during the powder alarm in Charlestown and Cambridge. No, this was planned way in advance. And in fact, at the very beginning of April, events were starting to take place that made it known that an expedition into the countryside was looming very close. At the beginning of April, General Gage gave orders to Admiral Graves to have his sailors make the boats ready to cross the soldiers from Boston into the Cambridge marshes. This was done in front of the entire town. During a workday, people saw sailors working on boats and then putting them in the water to see that they were seaworthy. In fact, seeing that, I was urged by Dr. Warren and others to ride out to the countryside to warn Samuel Adams and John Hancock, but most especially the men in Concord, where many of the stores were hidden, that the soldiers were going to march. Now, that was premature, because they were not going to march until 10 days later. But there were other signs. On the 15th of April, just three days before my ride, the elite companies of each British regiment, the Light Infantry and the Grenadiers, were taken off duty with excuses such as new evolutions, which fooled no one. And later that evening, <laughs> the boats were put into the water and moored against the HMS Somerset and other vessels ready for use. They're doing all of this in front of you. All of this in front of us. And of course, through that winter, we watched the soldiers and the sailors two by two around Boston. So none of this escaped notice. So these boats were moored along the men of war and they were made ready. So the next day, and imagine this, riding on the Sabbath, which was not done. In fact, if we were to have this conversation today, I would not be speaking to you because we would both be in church. So for me to be riding on the Sabbath out of Boston, out into the countryside, to Lexington to speak with John Hancock and Samuel Adams, who had escaped Boston because there were orders that General Gage received that he could arrest all rebel leaders. They thought it wise to flee. So I went and conversed with them, and we agreed that the time was indeed now. So on my way back, I spoke with Colonel Conant and others in Charlestown. And this is where the idea of a solitary rider puzzles me because there's no way we could have had the response that we had to provide for the fact that I might be captured and to warn the countryside ahead of me. We looked at Christ Church, or the North Church, if you will, being the tallest building in Boston with its steeple facing Charlestown to come up with a signal system. One lantern lit if the troops marched across the Boston Neck, two lanterns if they would cross by boat. Now, having said this and saying to you that the sailors were working on the boats days earlier, the point would seem moot, would it not? Clearly, they're crossing by water. 
So the idea was that I could be crossing in that boat and the night watch of HMS Somerset or from the North Battery might spot us and stop the boat as they did other boats that might try to cross in the ferry lane. If I'm captured, then the word does not go forth. What if William Dawes is stopped at the guard checkpoint at the neck? What if he is not allowed to leave? By placing those lanterns, courtesy of Robert Newman, a friend and sexton of the church and two others, the sign could be seen. So after I met with Dr. Warren around 10 o'clock and Mr. Newman and my two friends to set the lanterns, I went home to get my boots and spurs and my surtout, French word for cloak, and I met my two friends who rowed me across. When I arrived in Charlestown, I met with Colonel Conant and others, Richard Devins of the Committee of Safety, and Deacon Larkin, who would give me his father's horse eventually. I told them and others what was acting, and they said, and this is most important, they said they had seen the signals, and they had sent a rider who would eventually be captured. But the point is they had seen the signals that my friends had placed on my behalf in the people of Old North Church, Christ Church, whatever you wish to call it. They had seen the signals, and they had already taken action, which was the whole point of it. And every place I stopped along the way, after escaping two mounted officers in Charlestown, just beyond the common and Charlestown neck, I escaped them. I had to double back because I was bound for Cambridge. I doubled back and made, rode my way through Medford, or Mystic, if you will, and then Monotony. I had a very fine horse, by the way. That mare outrode the, both of the horses of those mounted officers. One of them was stuck in a clay pit, and the other was just much slower than my horse. I made a stop at Monotony and warned the militia there. The ride had started about 11 o'clock. It took about an hour by the time I got to Lexington and rode past the town green and the Buckman Tavern towards the parsonage of Reverend Clark, where Mr. Hancock and Mr. Adams were staying. And lo and behold, as I rode up to the house, I had figured they would be expecting me because there, as we had mentioned, there had been other riders. And there was Sergeant Monroe, as I found out later, and a number of men from the Lexington militia, I believe eight or so. They did not recognize me. Why? I had been in the saddle for an hour, sir, and I was rather irate at the response I received. As I rode up, Sergeant Monroe told me to keep the noise down. The family had retired and did not wish to be disturbed. <laughs> Do you think I was annoyed, sir, at that time? Seriously, you've been, ride well, you've been riding for a couple hours? For an hour. Okay. And avoided a mounted patrol, which were throughout the countryside, capturing riders such as me. So, yes, I was put out, and I yelled out, noise. You'll have noise enough before long. The regulars are coming out. And the house stirred, and Mr. Hancock and Mr. Adams, and Mr. Hancock's fiance, Ms. Dolly, and his Aunt Lydia started to pack to leave the Clark family and make their escape from Lexington. And I was wondering where Mr. Dawes was. 
he had left before me. And I believe about a half an hour after I had arrived and presented my note from Dr. Warren, he arrived with his note. And we went to the Buckman Tavern and we refreshed ourselves. And then we decided it would be a very good idea to make our way to Concord because clearly an expedition of the number of men that we supposed to be around 800 or so would not be marching out just to capture those two men. Perhaps the Mounted Patrol would do it, but not a column of men that had left Boston around 10 o'clock and crossed by boat and had delays, stuck in the marshes around Cambridge and waiting for rations, as we heard later. So they had a two-hour delay just crossing. So it enabled us to spread the word even farther. So William Dawes and I got back on our horses and rode towards Concord. We were greeted on the road by Dr. Samuel Prescott of Concord, who was known in those parts, who had been out courting his fiance Lydia Mulliken, and we were about halfway to Concord, right about where the town of Lincoln is, because the doctor was known in those parts. We had him go with one of us to alert a house. On this occasion, I rode about 100 rods ahead, and much as I had seen two mounted officers before, in Charlestown, I saw two other mounted officers, and I signaled to my fellow riders to join me, and two became four, and they, we were going to ride through them, but they drew their pistols and their swords and herded us into a pasture they had picked out for the purpose, having put down the fence for us to ride into, and we made break Did you not have a pistol with you? Very good point. I did not, and as you will see, it saved my life. Now, Dr. Prescott knew the area, jumped a fence, and he was gone. William Dawes made his escape as well by a ruse, pretending to be one of the officers in pursuit. I went to the right in the pasture, and I rode straight into six more officers and sergeants who seized my reins and my bridle. And I was dismounted, and they wanted to know who I was and where I'd come from. I told them. I told them my name, Revere, and that I'd come from Boston as a messenger rider. You can imagine their thoughts when they heard my name because they knew who I was. I could hear them whispering and muttering, what, Paul Revere? And then they asked me my business. I knew more about their mission than they did. I told them that they had missed their aim. And they said, what of our aim? We are out here gathering deserters. And I said, I knew better. And I also told a bit of a fib. I told them that I alerted the countryside all the way to this point and that I should have 500 men here very soon, which left an impression on them, even though it was not true. They went to get their commanding officer, who had been one of the original four. And when those four, along with the officer who went to get them, came back, I was questioned further. I was treated rather harshly at points. The major, having heard that I knew a great deal about the mission, put a pistol to my head and told me that he was going to ask me some questions and that if I did not answer truthfully, he would blow my brains out. I told him I knew not why I was stopped and I was not afraid to tell the truth. And again, I told them everything that I told the other officers about the boats, rowing the soldiers across, running aground in the marshes and the delays and that they were on their way. 
and this disturbed them very much to the point where they got all of us, there were other prisoners and myself, back on our horses, and they herded us out onto the road. An officer held my reins. At some point, it seemed perhaps it was beneath his dignity, so he gave my reins to a sergeant, and I was told that if I made a run for it, that they would blow my brains out. They would shoot me. And I was sensible to the danger. And we rode right back to where I wanted them to go, right back towards Lexington Green. And as we drew close, they heard a shot. Major Mitchell asked me at that point the directions to Cambridge, where the column was. And then, after releasing the other prisoners, they heard a whole volley. And I was let go. Now, hearing that pistol, seeing bonfires and hearing church bells, and then hearing that volley, had I been armed, sir, I'm not sure I would have lived. I That's probably why they would didn't not shoot have you. Perhaps. Or mm-hmm. when they first captured me and they searched me, what if I had a pistol then before Major Mitchell even approached me? I could have been ill used then. So perhaps when that volley was fired They were thinking of the 500 men, and they let me go, gave my horse to a sergeant who rode her to death, I later heard. But that volley was the Lexington militia firing their muskets to go into the Buckman Tavern to wait it out, as was tradition, for safety reasons. Those men saved my life that night. But I had no horse now, and the column of officers and sergeants rode off to the column on the road under Colonel Smith. So I trudged through the burying ground back to the parsonage in Lexington, hoping that Mr. Adams and Mr. Hancock were gone. To my horror, I opened the door and they were still there, arguing. John Hancock was intent on going out to the green and standing with the Lexington militia. We Hancock all wanted to fight? Quality. Yes, he did. Man. We took... I related my story of capture, and because of that, and because of the, the others, Captain Parker, Sergeant Monroe, and Samuel Adams, of course, Samuel told them that this was not their business. They were of the Congress, and he was quite true. We finally, as the new day was approaching, got them to leave, and then I returned, and I was with Mr. Hancock's private secretary, And he informed me, Mr. Lowell, that there was a trunk of papers in the upper chamber of the Buckman Tavern that could incriminate us all. So I went with him to retrieve those papers through the ranks of the militia up the stairs of the Buckman Tavern to retrieve that trunk. And along the way, one rider who had been out looking for the column said that he could find nothing, that there was no column. But then two other riders said, They were indeed coming, and they were getting closer. And as I looked out the window of the second floor of the Buckman Tavern, I saw the column on the road approaching with their glittering bayonets, even that early in the morning, and their red coats. And we stumbled down the stairs with that trunk of papers, which was the heaviest trunk I think I have ever carried, (laughs) stumbled down the stairs, out the door, through the ranks of the militia, heard Captain Parker's final instructions and were 100 yards away or so behind when the light infantry of the column 
made its approach from either side of the meeting house and formed front. And as we were making our way away from the scene, I heard a pistol shot. Then I heard two shots, then a whole ragged volley. And neither of us wanted to stay around to see what would happen next. And that was when the day of the War of Independence. That was when it all began. And, of course, I the next day would meet with Dr. Warren and others in Cambridge. In the days that followed, I would be engaged as a messenger writer to seek more men, to seek more clothing, more arms, powder, whatever was needed, medicines. And the siege of Boston would begin with my family still inside Boston. And in May, the following month, I would finally get all of them out of there except for Paul Jr., who at the age of 15 would watch the house. And a silversmith, a Tory silversmith named Isaac Clemens, I allowed to use my shop before he would leave the following year with General Howe and the troops. My goodness. Well, obviously... This was not a one-man operation, and it's just absurd to even think that's the case, but I guess I didn't realize how far in advance you'd been planning all of this for this exact moment, because it really was. You were planning in advance because they were doing this all out in the open so that when the revolution was going to start, you'd be ready. And it, for one rider to attempt to do all of that would have been pure folly. Yeah. It was Dr. Prescott who would make to conquer, to warn the militia there, the minute companies of what was coming. You know, and there would be know, other riders that would leave Concord, that would leave the various other towns, Lexington, Concord. Every place I stopped, other riders went forth. Signals were given, be it church bells or musket shots or bonfires, warning of the approach of the troops, which they heard as they were marching towards Lexington. They, they maybe knew there was going to be some resistance. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And once they heard my name murmured by their officers in meeting, they knew they were in grave danger. And on the road towards Lexington, the soldiers, from what I understand, were given orders to prime and load their muskets to be ready. Colonel Revere, in our time, there's a lot of people that think that what happened on this ride is that you got on your horse in the middle of the night, they don't know anything about the crossing the Charles River and this whole spider network of spies that you've built up. And there's a lot of people that think that you just went on this ride and went down the street screaming, the British are coming, the British are coming. Would you please explain for anybody that listening that still believes that why you would never scream, the British are coming? Well, if I did, they would think I was a lunatic. Because <laughs> That's think, pretty think of the year. It is 1775. We are British. We are American colonists of the British Empire. So we are British. Those troops, in reality, are our troops because we are British subjects. So we are defending ourselves against our own government, a, what we believe they are doing to be illegal against the Charter of Massachusetts, and the British Constitution. So we would not say the British are coming because we are British. So it would be the same today in our country, this being, of course, 1802, if the same thing happened 
and troops were being marched out from Boston, say, to western Massachusetts, as they were during the Shays' Rebellion, saying, the Americans are coming. <laughs> That's a great comparison. That's exactly what so it would it be would, like. It would make no sense. People would be standing the there with, wondering what was going on. Indeed. You would think the person a lunatic. We were British, so we would not say the British were coming. That would, of course, come later with declaring our independence. Once we declared our independence, then we thought of them as British troops, not as our troops any longer. I see. So in, in April 18th and 19th, when that ride took place, and then there was the Battle of Lexington and Concord, a few months later, that was April, May, yeah, a few months later, that's when Bunker Hill happened. And in our conversation, you've mentioned Dr. Joseph Warren's name many times. I understand that he was a dear friend of you, yours, and that was the day that he fell. What can you tell me about Dr. Warren and that, that battle? I would surmise that had he lived, he would have either been a great general during our war for independence or he would have been in the Congress. I would suggest, as good a man as he was, and as great an orator and writer, that he would not have been in Congress. He would have been a general in the field with General Washington. He was set to be a major general in the Massachusetts Army, but went that day to the battle just as a soldier and fought as one though I'm sure he was treated as an officer when he was there. His commission had not been formally made, so he went to the field as a soldier that day. And I have the utmost respect for my dear friend and lodge brother of St. Andrew's Lodge and the Grand Lodge, in that he was willing to give up everything to go fight that day. It is one thing... For a man of any Congress to speak of liberty, to speak of freedom, and to speak of defending it, but to actually do it is quite another thing. And Especially this is a man with so I, much at stake. This is why I've always indeed, admired Hancock. Indeed. Now, I've known him since I was in St. Andrew's Lodge in 1760. Now, I started to get to know the doctor in those early days of the 1760s when we were both members of St. Andrew's Lodge and when all of the events leading up to the war happened, such as, of course, the Stamp Act protests, the Boston Massacre, the destruction of the tea, and he had begun his practice in those early days, 1763 into 1764, because that was when a great smallpox epidemic happened, was when he really became prominent in town. And he had been an apprentice for Dr. James Lloyd before that. And I got to know that young man then when he joined St. Andrew's Lodge. And the more I knew him, the more I respected him. One of the doctors who did a great deal during the smallpox epidemics and wrote a great deal as we started to defend our rights as Englishmen and his oratory on... Boston Massacre Remembrance Days and his drafting of the Suffolk Resolves, which I would argue, before the Declaration of Independence, was probably the greatest paper ever written regarding our 
defense of our freedoms, our liberties. And he was a tragic loss. And I think we can both agree. Imagine if he had survived that day, what would have become of him? Yeah, no question about it. No, I mean, it's another one of those, you know, we just got to wonder because there's no way to tell. You keep saying the destruction of the T. You've said that word, that phrase several times. Now, remember, this is in the future, so anything you say, nobody's going to find anything about this. Well, I suppose it wouldn't matter in your time either, but you were in on that. Were you on the, were you on the boat? Well, were you an Indian that day? I am going to have to plead that I cannot answer and leave that to others. Because even now, there are some who have said I was there and some who I have not. There are some that speak freely of it and some who do not. And I will let those others speak. I will tell you this. And you can make up your own mind. Since I still maintain secrecy over this, just for the names involved, that there was a song called The Rallying Song, which mentions my name and Dr. Warren's. And I will use that as my answer. And it was called The Railing Song? Rallying Song. The Rallying Song. Okay. All right. All right. I never even thought about... If Dr. Warren was on there, I hadn't really considered that. I actually spoke with him once. I wish I would have asked him that. Have you heard the name George Hughes? A shoemaker's apprentice, perhaps? You do know who George Hughes is. I have heard of him, yes. There is a story of a man named George Hughes who apparently was at the Boston Massacre and who was dressed as one of the Indians on the ship and was involved in all of those, but he's kind of an obscure man that nobody really knows until somebody wrote a book about him in this time. So you have heard oh, that name? Indeed. I have indeed. Very interesting. Not somebody that you knew well, though, right? No, I knew fellow tradesmen, so the name I recognize. Okay. William you're, Dar you're trying to get me to give away secrets that are actually don't need to be kept safe anymore, which I feel honor-bound to do. No, but I yes, understand. I'm acquainted with that. You're absolutely right. I am trying to do that, too. I can't help myself. You He's speak of me. William Dawes, sir. William Dawes, yes. In our time, everybody knows your name. Everybody knows your name. I mean, there's nobody who doesn't. Every age. William Dawes, I'll bet you one in a million people have heard that name. They do not know who he is. And on your ride that night, he was the one that left first, right? Indeed. Why do you think that is? Why do we not know about William Dawes? That surprises me because, again, this notion of my being a solitary writer seems strange to me because there were so many that were involved. William Dawes took the same perils that I did. And actually, he had to cross the Boston Net past centuries. I did not have to do that. I did not see centuries of any kind until I saw the mounted officers in Charlestown. So the fact that I am the only one that is remembered and I am painted as this solitary writer seems strange to me. The only thing I can think of in my time is that I gave a deposition right after Lexington and Concord occurred and then I gave another account to Jeremy Belknap of the Massachusetts Historical Society not that long ago in 1798, about four years ago. 
those are the only reasons I can think of that my name would be the most remembered. It would be a tragedy in my mind that he would not be remembered, or Dr. Prescott, or the many others that rode that night. You know what? I have had such a nice time talking to you, and I have just a couple last questions because I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for taking all this time. I want to ask My you, pleasure. first of all, in, in the history books, you're listed as several things. You're listed as an American silversmith, which we now know as goldsmith, but an American silversmith, an engraver, an early industrialist, a son of liberty, a military man, a patriot, and a founding father. If you were going to describe yourself, which of those would you choose or would you choose something else? I would say Paul Revere, family man, Masonic brother, craftsman, and patriot. That makes a lot of sense, especially when you say family man. I come from a big family as well, not as big as yours, but you having 16 children, of which one of them is named Joseph Warren Revere. How's Joseph Warren doing? Very well. He is, of course, the name of our company is Revere and Son, from our iron foundry to our foundry for church bells in Cannon and Boston, our copper mill here in Canton. I believe that when I am tired of all of this and I wish to find an easy chair to sit in, that the business will be his. He is very skilled as a craftsman. Well, it sounds like he had a good teacher. Well, your most kind. And of course, I do not forget Paul Jr., who was in the business with us, but has gone off on his own. With, Of course, at one point, I turned our silversmithing shop over to him so that we could concentrate on the foundry. And he is very much interested in foundry work as well. And he has set himself up in his own business. So as far as my business... I believe it will be Joseph Warren Revere's to run, and run successfully, I am quite sure. Your son that set up his own business, are you in competition with him then? Oh, certainly not. He has, of course, continued with silversmithing and has also an interest in foundry work, but no, I suspect there will be very little competition. He is my son, of course. Yes, yeah. What are you going to do next? I mean, you obviously have set up these very successful businesses and build an extraordinary future for you and your family, it looks like. What do you want to do next? What are you hoping to do with these businesses? Well, watch them prosper. And when I become of a certain age, turn them over to my sons and my grandsons, most specifically, as we mentioned, Joseph Warren, to rest and enjoy the rest of my life with my dear wife, Mrs. Revere and enjoy family and friends in our last years and see what our future holds. I have great faith. My, my thought on this, of course, is that I and others, not only has the Green Dragon Tavern been a meeting place for the North End Caucus and our Masonic Lodge, St. Andrew's Lodge, but it is also a place that we met to just hold a meeting of mechanics to discuss ratification of the U.S. Constitution, of which we were in favor of, bringing us this republic, this government that we have. 
I have some fear in the future of an administration under Thomas Jefferson, but I trust in the Constitution and that there will be checks and balances in the future, as John Adams wrote in his Massachusetts Constitution, and as was put in place by the men in Philadelphia who created our federal Constitution with a Bill of Rights, that all will prosper. So I am looking forward to retirement, sir. As you should. You've put some hours in over your life and been through as difficult of challenges as anybody could. You just used the word mechanics. In our time, that means something different that I think it means in your time. What are mechanics? The artisan class. I, I guess I would call it the working class. Mechanics, artisans, the words are somewhat interchangeable. You can speak of everything from those who make hats to shoes to pieces of metal, such as myself, silversmiths, all sorts of trades. When I say mechanics, I mean men of the trades, having it to do with metal or shipping or clothing, tailors, such as that. George Hughes would have been a mechanic then when he wasn't dumping tea, right? Indeed, if that was the case. (laughs) I think you just spilled the (laughs) beans there. (laughs) Yes. Thank you so much for all of this time today. Thank you for everything that you've done for the creation of our country and the role model that you sent for all these children that you've had. And I just, is there anything else you want to say before we wrap this up? Not particularly, just that I hope that our country continues to prosper and do well. It absolutely will. And a huge part of that is because of you. Thank you again for your time. I'm wishing you and your family the best. Thank you very much, sir. Paul Revere's role in history was gigantic, at least until the creation of the government began. His courage and ingenuity made it possible for the American colonists to stand up and fight together at the exact moment their liberty was at stake. It was Revere who identified his friend Dr. Joseph Warren's mangled body in a mass grave at Bunker Hill after seeing dental work he had previously done for the doctor. He was involved in everything. But once he was no longer needed and then discarded, he didn't complain that life had given him lemons. Instead, he chose to make cannons. He picked up the next project, making the absolute best of his situation, and provided value for his family, his community, and his country. We should all be so lucky to have the ability to shake off the unfair circumstances of life and then just get back up and start making $17,000 spoons again like nothing had happened. Because of his work ethic and his can-do attitude, Paul Revere died a wealthy man. Thank you for listening, and remember to tell a friend about the Calling History podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm history.